This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. Hi, I'm David, a school founder and CEO, a mindfulness teacher, and leadership coach. This is a podcast for paradigm shifters just like you, ready to reignite the flames of passion that drew you into education in the first place. You're ready to live and flow, lead with love, and be the fullest version of the change maker you always dreamed of. Then join me as I break down the mindfulness, leadership, and life teachings that have completely changed my life, while also speaking with guests whose wisdom have inspired new ideas and transformation across the globe. Join me on the journey of becoming a mindful education warrior. Hey everyone, I'm super excited today to share my conversation with Dr. Tyler Hester, who is currently the founder of Educators Thriving, which I'll tell you about more in a second. He's a vice principal in Richmond, California. He has a very impressive resume. He's worked for the U.S. Department of Education, the Obama presidential campaign, He's been a classroom teacher, a leader at Teach for America. He has an undergraduate degree from Stanford, a master's from Cambridge, and a doctorate from Harvard. So he's going to share some really interesting points and also what he's learned from his research at Harvard. We're going to discuss more about how he launched Educators Thriving, what it's about, and his commitment to creating lasting education change, all the challenges that come along with that. And I think a lot of us can relate to that story about, uh, you know, how he's tried to create change. He learned in his research that there are predictable personal challenges that we all face as educators. And that's why he created Educators Thriving, because people are not working on solving these predictable challenges. His book that he's been working on is called Don't Be Miserable in October. That's a provisional title. And I feel like I love that title because we all know that October is when we kind of have our low moment in the year, correct? <laughs> like you said, there's predictable personal challenges that we already know. So you're going to hear more about that. So Educators Thriving was born to supplant professional development with personal development, which I absolutely love because he learned through launching the program with a small group of teachers in Boston that there really is a hunger for this type of personal development in our schools for educators like us that want to do the work on ourselves. And there's not a systematic way for districts and schools to be really facing this problem and taking it head on. So Tyler has one solution that he's offering, and I think you'll love to hear more about it. And I'm really excited for you to listen to this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to be here today with Tyler. Tyler, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Awesome. Awesome. I'm really excited to talk to you. I was telling Tyler before we hit record that I really want to hear from him about, you know, what was the journey with educators thriving. So 
I read for them your bio and a little bit more about educators thriving before they start listening here. So they know a little bit about you, but I'd love to hear about, you know, what, what was the journey? Why did you start this organization? And of course, tell us all about it. Just, just go for it. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll start with a story. Okay. Uh, and the story takes place in October of my first year as a teacher. Okay. Um, I look kind of young for my age, but it, this was many moons ago and okay. it was October of my first year as a teacher. And I was just uh, like overwhelmed, exasperated, like not doing a good job conscious. I was not doing a good job. And my mom was visiting from out of town and she was like, well, Tyler, can we hang out? Can I, can we, can I see you? And I was like, no, I can't, I can't. I'm, I got to do my lesson plans when I fly and see uh, she's like, well, can we at least like get breakfast? Uh, yeah. And so we went to an IHOP restaurant near the school where I was teaching. And I will never forget this moment. The pancakes had just arrived at the table in front of me. And my mom was like, so just how are you doing in general? And I will never forget a, my eyes welled up with tears and a teardrop literally dripped into the pancake in front mm-hmm. of me. And I was like, mom... It's so hard. Yeah. So that was me crying into my pancakes as a first year teacher. So podcast oh, yeah. people, great to meet you. <laughs> yeah. And everyone who's listening has some story like that as a first year teacher. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that is probably the case. So I think, yeah. I, so I was a teacher for four years. Um, and I think I just, you know, was conscious of, of the difficulty of the work. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, uh, And then I spent five years leading Teach for America in Richmond, California. And so um, my job was to support early career educators. Okay. And um, I think that that experience also, I saw, you know, the difficulty of, of the work that we get to do. And then uh, I, I've always been kind of like a personal development dork. Uh, and yeah, so I like, love too. learning about this stuff. Yeah. And I was, I had written, long story short, there, there are some videos of me teaching that had a lot of views on YouTube. And I wrote a book called Seven Steps for a Great Start to the School Year. And, and I, I really enjoyed that process. And I was, I'd started working on another book, which is currently a 250 page mess of a Google document, but God willing, someday it'll be a book. Yes. And it, um, it's called the the provisional title is don't be miserable in October. Mm. And it's about like, what are basically the thought that occurred to me is there are predictable personal challenges that educators face. True. And yet we systematically don't equip people to know that they're coming and overcome those challenges that are predictable. Yeah. So I started working on this book and I was doing it at, I, I, left my job, um, at teacher American. I was, I went to the doctor of education leadership program at Harvard. And in the spring of your first year, everyone takes a class called sector change. Okay. And you have to think of an idea that you think has the potential to change the sector. And so largely out of laziness, I picked this book that I was working on every morning. Um, and I was like, well, just, you know, I'll, work on this book. I think this book, I think we do need to change support educators differently. Yeah. Um, and so I'll 
make the book the kind of centerpiece of my sector change project. And at the end of it, you had to do a pitch. There was like a pitch competition. And I gave the pitch. There are this many new teachers every year in America, and they have these predictable personal challenges. And so I'm going to write a book. Um, and I remember the reaction people was like, you're going to write a book? Like, who who cares about a book? Uh, right. You actually you should actually do something. You should actually create a program um, that would would solve this problem. And I don't know, I took that to heart. And so I reached out to someone at the Boston Teachers Union. And I reached out to their head of professional development. I got connected to the head of professional development for the Boston Teachers Union at the end, summer between my first and second year at Harvard. And um, he didn't respond. <laughs> he was like, who's this obnoxious you know, grad student guy. Um, and right. then we, we, he, he finally took the meeting and we, we were meeting at Gutman library at, um, on, on campus. And I, you know, pitched this idea, Hey, it's predictable personal challenges. I think we could, and there's a lot that we know empirically leads to higher degrees of well being from positive psychology and just research in general. Yeah. And so I was like, I want to, lead a course. I really had no idea what I was going to do. I said six sessions once a month for six months. And like I said, he was a little skeptical, but by the end of the meeting, I think it was by the end of the meeting, he may have wanted more time to kind of give it the green light. He said, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. Uh, and he said, I, he, he thought that somewhere around 10 or 12 people would show up. And so he booked a room that could fit 15 people. And we sent out an email with a flyer about the opportunity and 75 people signed up wow. across the BTU membership. And I think that was the first sign that there's a hunger for this type of stuff. Yes. So did it that year and it went really well. You know, the idea is just, we're not making stuff up. It's not what Tyler Hester thinks right. leads to well-being. It is what do we know from research about if you do X, then statistically speaking, the probability is you'll experience a boost in subjective well-being or whatever X time later. You know, I would just present the research and um, give people an opportunity to learn about and practice with and apply that stuff. We can talk more about this later, but parenthetically, I think I think it's really important to share the research because it enables people to understand the mechanism by which a thing leads to higher degrees of well-being, mm -hmm. which then subsequently enables them to more nimbly apply that to their life. Right. So okay. went really well that first year. And I knew I wanted to keep it going. It felt like there was something there. And so in my program, I'm giving you the long story. So tell me if uh, yeah, this is great. No, this, to... this is great. Don't worry about so, it. I knew I wanted to keep doing it, but I had gone to the doctoral program because I thought I wanted to be a superintendent someday. Mm -hmm. I'd, you know, been in this teacher training world and kind of on the periphery of systems. And I wanted to just be in the system and, yeah. you know, maybe someday lead one. And, and so for my doctoral residency year, I knew I wanted to kind of and I was really wrestling with this during the second year in grad school. And then during my doctoral residency year, um, I wanted to be close to a superintendent. I wanted to essentially shadow a superintendent, be on a district leadership cabinet, but then also build out educators thriving. And so I went to 
some system leaders around the country and I said, Hey, are your teachers burning out? They all said, yes. Yeah. Are you struggling with shortages? They all said, yes. Yeah. And I said, Hey, I'd like to lead a, I'd like to learn from you and lead a program to help educators experience higher degrees of well-being. What do you say? And they basically all said, yes. Um, and I, eventually I went to Stockton, California. My mom had grown up in the central Valley. I spent every summer of my youth going to Ripon. You probably know Ripon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like literally every holiday in my youth, we'd get in the car, drive to Ripon. And, um, and so the central Valley felt like home hmm. and John Daisy had just been appointed the superintendent and he had mentored me a bit before grad school. And, um, you know, he, he, he's a, he's a, he, he takes bold stance uh, yeah, yes. in this work. And I really appreciated uh, his willingness to take risks on behalf of kids and and his desire to stand in places like Stockton where people didn't, uh, a lot of people don't want to stand there. Yeah. Uh, and so when I heard he was a superintendent, I reached out to him and said, hey, can we, I gave him that kind of pitch and and he said, game on. Uh, so went to Stockton and then, and then that year spent kind of half my time learning about the superintendency. Um, and my gosh, that year showed me that is a hard job. That is a hard, very yeah, complex yeah. job. And I, and we did 12 sessions. And so I kind of did a roadshow throughout the district uh, at the beginning of the year. And we had um, almost 200 people who applied to be part of the program that year, 12 sessions over the course of the year. And, and so that became the focus of my doctoral capstone I don't know if you share links, but if people are having a hard time sleeping, you can read my capstone. And, I can, I'll put it in. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah, so then that was kind of the focus of my doctoral work. And at the end of that year, you know, I'd gone to Stockton to kind of be like, do I want to be a superintendent or do I want to do right. this entrepreneurial thing? And my answer at the end of the year was, yes, I want to do both. Okay. And so... I had been a teacher for four years before, mm -hmm. two in a traditional public school in Southern California and two at a charter school in the Bay Area. And I knew I wanted to be in a traditional public school. I can say more about why and kind of how that relates to my faith and my motivation for this work. But yeah, I knew I wanted to be in a traditional public school in the state of California. You can't get an administrators. And I also thought, okay, if I'm going to eventually maybe one day lead a school system, who are you to lead a system of schools if you haven't led a school? True. And yes. so um, knew I wanted to lead a school. And I also just remember driving by schools with John and just feeling envious. Like schools are where the work happens. Yes. And like I wanted to be enmeshed in a community. Yes. And so, um, yeah, decided at the end of my my doctoral program to... Uh, go and be a teacher in Stockton Unified at Cesar Chavez High School. Okay. And I had a few of my professors, one professor in particular from Harvard who was like, okay, so you're graduating from the Doctor of Education Leadership Program at Harvard and you're going to be a teacher? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, yes. I did see that on your, whenever I was looking you up, and I was like, that's a really interesting choice. I know there's a story there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I wrestled my ego there was part of me that was like, oh, I've, you know, run this teacher training program and I'm a fancy doctor man now. And yeah. 
you know, uh, and I'm, and, but I, I had this distinct moment. It was in like September of that year. I remember I was driving back from school, but you know, I mean, so the purpose of it was I wanted to one day maybe lead a school and yeah. I wanted to be in the work. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to just have a fancy title and talk pretty about the work, but not be doing it. Um, and so I had this moment in September when, uh, I was driving back from school and I had this deep joy, just this deep sense of like, I love being enmeshed in a school community. I love the work of being an educator, a teacher yeah, and feeling like I had called the world's bluff, you know, feeling like it was like, oh, the world says that being a teacher is not as fancy or whatever. And <laughs> it just, it's, it's where joy is. It's, it's proximity yes. to kids and families. Yes. And so um, yeah. And so that year, the, my, during my residency year, we kept it going in Boston. So it was in Boston and Stockton for the 2018 or for the 1920 school year. And then that next year we added, we kept it going in Boston and Stockton. We added two more partners. Um, and then over the last few years, we've now worked with probably 30 t- schools, unions, county offices, school districts, to do the work that we do. And, yeah. um, we do, we now do two things. I, we started with this essentially helping schools and districts supplement their professional development with personal development. Okay. But in the back of my head, as I was doing that, I always knew that was insufficient because, or it was necessary, but not sufficient because right. it's not enough to help someone cope really well with a broken system. Uh, right. that is going right. to perpetually reburn people out. And so I always knew I wanted to mm-hmm. do stuff around system work and happen to get connected to two fantastic teammates, now colleagues who were really passionate about that one. Um, I first got connected to Hallie Fox who got her, we, we actually taught together in Richmond and she got her PhD in measuring educator well-being. That was what her PhD oh, wow. was. Okay. And she was kind of deciding between the academy and more practical applications. And I was like, let's get practical. Yeah. Uh, and so she has just, she, she's totally brilliant and, and has built out with Laura, who is similarly brilliant, uh, got her MBA at Haas and was a teacher. Both Hallie and Laura were teachers and um, they have built out this second aspect of our work, which is, to help school and system leaders measure the well-being of their workforce, mm-hmm. analyze results, establish priorities on the basis of what they find, and then take action to make the change that they see that they want to see on the basis of the results. Right. So that's the story. Okay. This is amazing. This is I I feel like just from perusing your website, I got pieces of this, but to hear the all the the whole story is really awesome. So just to clarify, there what are just for listeners, what are people doing? Like what's the general program and how's it all work? And like, what are you trying to, so I love how you said, um, I can't remember how you worded it, but basically well-being or happiness, but you know, what is the goal of the program and then what are they doing? Hmm. Yeah. I think the goal of the program is to basically say, Hey, we've got these predictable personal challenges that people face uh, let's, let's do something about it as a, as a school system. And so let's take what we know from, you know, primarily the field of positive psychology. That was a real inspiration 
for me. And, and, you know, just as a, as, as an aside, what I love a description of positive psychology, I'm guessing every one of your listeners knows uh, a whole bunch about it, but the description that I think was most sticky for me is that for the majority of the history of the field of psychology, we sought to understand how to take people from negative 10 to zero from like clinically depressed to okay. Mm -hmm. But what we haven't, well, what the field of psychology hadn't focused on necessarily as much was how to take people from zero to 10 and how to facilitate human flourishing. Right. And I think the hypothesis as Marty Seligman kind of coined the term around the turn of the century and um, was, was that it, it may be a different set of stuff that takes someone from negative 10 to zero as right. compared to the stuff right. that takes people from zero to 10. And let's apply the same level of empirical rigor to understanding how we take people from zero to 10, as we have historically applied to taking people from negative 10 to zero. So another way of putting the goal of the program is, as I said earlier, help schools and systems supplement their professional development with personal development that is rooted in what we know empirically leads to higher degrees of well-being. Um, so, yeah, just change the warp and woof of how we ed support educators. So what is what is an example of yeah. personal development? Yeah. yeah. So there's a document on our educatorsfiving.org slash program page that lists out the you know 12 sessions. But when we're partnering with it, okay. when we're meeting up with a new partner, um, we'll basically say, how many learning experiences do you want your people to do? And, you know, Boston Teachers Union, we're going into, I think you're six at this point. Uh, maybe five, um, where they're do they're doing twelve sessions. So they're they're okay. people opt into twelve sessions, and most of our partners they choose about five or six sessions. And so the first session is typically the session we call the five pitfalls, which is again like here are these predictable challenges, and then people discuss the degree to which they have experienced those challenges. Um, and I think the importance of that is that it normalizes the difficulty of the work. There are a lot of people yeah. who feel kind of crazy, like they're the only one going yes. through this stuff. And the hope is that one of the comments we see most often at the end of that session is people are like, I don't feel like I'm the only one going through this. I don't feel alone. Yep. Um, and we also teach some like reflective listening practices in that session. And then in, and, and in, that, in that session, we talk about a really excellent study uh, that was one of the co-authors was Carol Dweck. Another one was James Gross, who is actually my psych one professor at Stanford and undergrad. And so I feel a special connection to the study about misery. Uh, it's called, okay. um, well, so uh, what is it? Um, how I'm blanking on the title of the study right now, but um, essentially it's about the fact that we systematically underestimate the amount of negative experiences that other people are going through. And we overestimate the number of positive experiences that other people are going through. <laughs> so they ask yep. undergraduates, like, yeah. how many of these positive experiences have you had in the last two weeks? And then estimate how many these experiences other people have had in the next two weeks. And, you know, it's like going to a party, going to a fun party, you know, 40 some percent of people said that they had done that, but they estimated that 60 some percent of yeah, people totally. had done that, right? I, I'm not surprised. Yeah, mm -hmm. it makes perfect and, sense. And, and, and what's interesting about that is those estimation errors, the bigger the errors, predicted loneliness and rumination. Um, oh, I believe that. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know, the more you think everyone else is having a ball and you're the only one struggling. The my my friend is. who's in AA has all these funny um, 
sayings. And one of them is like, the ego is not your amigo. And that's, that's one of my favorites. The other one is compare and despair. So when people are mm. in compare mm. and despair, it's like, my house is not as nice as yours. My car is not as yeah. nice. My da, da, da. Yeah. So this all makes perfect sense. Compare and despair. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, in that first session, that's what we do. That's like the study for that session, right? So we try yeah. to provide research in every session that underpins the rationale for us doing that session. So some of the other sessions that a lot of our partners do on core values, for instance, the, the benefits, the benefits, the subjective well-being of knowing your core values and in particular reflecting on them in times of difficulty. Yes. There are sessions on strengths in which we talk about some of the early positive psych um, research that Marty Seligman did about that. If you know your strengths and use them in a new and different way every day for a week, one, three, yeah. and six months later, you have statistically significant improvements in well-being. There are sessions wow. on, and, and then we've built sessions over the course of the year. So sessions on boundaries and time management and mindfulness and um, prioritizing. Um, and so that's the idea. There's a list of 12 sessions where right now we're deep in, uh, the research on building two new sessions, one on appreciation and another on apology. So I've been mm. reading a lot of studies about apology and, um, it's fascinating. Like what makes an effective apology? What are the oh, constituent yeah. elements of an apology? Uh, are there apology languages? Are, and then like on the appreciation session, like our love language is real. Like it, what's the scientific right. uh, literature say about them? Uh, and so we're developing those sessions, but that's the idea is, is when people partner with us for the professional learning work um, it's, and, and then the, the key is how do you make it not just one more thing? That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. Or how do you not make it one more thing? And I was also going to ask, how do you keep the work going? Because one of the issues with like the professional professional development model in general is that it's like a one-off yeah. and then go and then the teachers, you know, drop it and never pick it up again. But just yeah. so those, those two, I have curiosities about those two concepts. Yeah. So one of the key questions we ask people is how do you make it not just one more thing? How do you in some way systemically reinforce people's participation? How do you salt the oats? And so there are a couple of different ways. In Boston, there's this thing called academic ladder credits. And so people who engage in PD can get academic ladder credits that when they satisfactorily complete the PD, moves them up the salary schedule. Okay. That's a huge incentive for people. Yeah. They want to, you know, get their three ALCs as a result of participating in the course. And then um, in other instances, we did a big national partnership with the American Federation of Teachers and... Um, by virtue of a grant that they got that we used in our work together, we gave everyone a $500 stipend for taking part in the program. Uh, and we have a partnership with a teacher's college of San Joaquin, not far from you. Yeah. And so we, we will kind of partner with them to make it a, a, a course. And so in some districts, the HR department says, yes, we will recognize these units for salary advancement. Um, and there are lots of different ways that people incent it. The, the third kind of major way that people do it is make it part of some ongoing professional learning program. So yes. in Henry County, Georgia, they have like five PD days over the course of the year. So it's part of their PD days, it's a track that people can engage in. Yep. In San Luis Obispo and Kern County Office of Education, it's been part of their induction program. So it's like oh, okay. just nice. as going through in your induction program, like, Every month you have an educator's thriving session, similar to Duval County, Florida. And in Polk County, Florida, it's part of their teacher mentor program. Um, and so, so 
that's a long way of saying, make it not just one more thing. Yeah. Um, and what was the second question you asked? <laughs> oh, I was asking, no, you were saying, I think that's the answer. Yeah. I, when you say not one more thing, are you saying like an add on to their work? Yeah. It's like, it's four o'clock. You're, you're, okay. you're tired as yeah. heck. I, I'm not going to go to a voluntary thing at four o'clock after. A okay. Got it. You, so you, you stipend like, them, you give them incentives to raise their salary and these things keep them going. But I also imagine there's oh, right. intrinsic. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, and, and I think the other thing you asked is, like, how do you make it not just a one and done thing? Oh, yes, that was And it. so we have all of these sessions and the kind of, the, the idea, the, our kind of favorite model of doing this with someone is on a weekly or every other week or every three, two or three weeks basis. So people will engage in one session and at the end of every session, there's an invitation to apply this and like an okay. application opportunity, which we call some people require it. Like in Boston, it's, it's homework um, yeah. that you, you, and I think it's the coolest homework in the world. It's like, oh, yeah. Hey, this is likely to lead to a higher degree of well-being. Yeah. Um, and what I like about doing a session every week or two weeks or two or three weeks or a month in some instances is that people apply it. And then at the beginning of the next session, we revisit that. Did you apply it at all? Okay, that's interesting. Like, what, what, what can you take? No judgment from that, that you kind of like didn't do that thing. Yeah. And then we learn about the new one. And so I think it keeps the ideas kind of alive in people's heads in a way that is more difficult if it's a, you know, one day training that you never think about again. So right. I think the right. repetition, the rhythm of it over the course of a year enables people to more deeply apply. And, and in a lot of our partners, we're now doing like a 2.0. So for instance, in Calaveras Unified School District, it's part of their induction program. They have five sessions in year one, and then it's five sessions in year two. And so it stretches over a, a decent period of time. And, and then we we're trying to be intentional about helping people revisit some of the concepts from earlier sessions. Okay. So this sounds amazing. This sounds awesome. I'm also a professional, I'm sorry, personal development nerd, as you said, or dork, I think you said. Yeah. So I get it. Are there other places doing this or programs? I mean, I haven't really been able to find them. That's why I was excited to talk to you. I mean, are there other districts or schools that are trying different things in this way? Like it's, it's baffling to me that it's, hasn't made its way into the schools somehow, some way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess other than like character education or SEL as one like close cousin, but do people like use the word to personal development? Um, I think the term I hear most commonly is like SEL for adults, basically. Yes. And that's um, for adults, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, just part of my kind of vision, and I think our team's vision for this work is that 20 years ago, almost no one was doing SEL with kids. True. Yeah. And now you're darn near negligent if you're not doing SEL with kids. Yep. And yet we're in an age where like in a moment where some people are doing this kind of, um, and so, you know, maybe there's some schools and school systems that are doing this with a great degree of intentionality, but I think it, the same thing is going to be true in 20 years, if maybe 10 years, maybe eight years, if you're not doing this work to support your educators in, and, in, in knowing about and overcoming the predictable personal challenges of this work, that's negligent. Yeah. Especially yeah. when we've got attrition and burnout rates at the rate at, 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 in the place that they are. 
So, so that's kind of bigger uh, notion of the sector as a whole. There, there are other organizations that I think are doing this. I think Ruler from Yale does some of this stuff. I know there's a care program that does mindfulness. A lot of it is about mindfulness, um, honestly. And we're actually, we've got a peer reviewed paper that's about to be published. And, and the idea of it is mindfulness is a good thing. And there are a lot of other things that have empirical evidence to suggest that they lead to higher degrees of well-being. Right. And let's just take a kind of shotgun approach of, of like, let's just try a bunch of things, yeah. you know? And That's what I like, yeah. yeah. When I, sorry, when I saw your website, I appreciated that it was like a more, um, I mean, shotgun approach. It's not what I would, how I would have said it, but you know, like I know I what you mean. I think it's the first time I've ever said it and I don't love the analogy, but you know, <laughs> the point is like, yeah, let's see it. what sticks. And because sometimes yeah. for some people, mindfulness is going to stick. And for other people, they're going to be like, that's nonsense. No, that's thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Especially if you're talking about, sounds like you're working with schools across the country. Yeah. 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 So you're working with all different types of cultures and totally, you know, yeah. people and yeah. Backgrounds and all that where yeah. my friend who um, started Valor, like, you know, they don't call it meditation and in, in the circle, they call it true North. Right. So, cause he's in Nashville. So you just, you have to kind of know yeah. your context and yeah. where you're going, but yeah. So, okay. So there are other people doing this. So your vision is this is something that becomes more mainstream, like SEL twenty years ago. It's becoming yeah. not only is it mainstream, but it's almost like expected that you're doing it. Yeah. And totally. okay. And then for your program, if I understand, if I understood it correctly from looking at the website, it sounds like there's some instruction that happens live, some instruction that happens yeah. like a, an asynchronous recorded, and then there's yeah. like a facilitator. So tell me a little about the kind of structure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say I'm, all of this so far has been about one half of what we do, right? So the other half is the measurement work. And, oh, you know, right. Yeah. But, but so, um, so putting a pin in that, the way we do the pr- professional learning work is either we will facilitate, either I or someone on my team will facilitate it synchronously. Okay. Or we give people asynchronous content that is me in this, you know, in my little apartment. Yeah. Um, and then people engage with it synchronously. There are, when we, when we talk with a new partner about kind of how we do the work, there are three characteristics of it. One is that it's grounded in research. The second is that it is somehow recognized. So units, stipends, stuff like that. And the third is that it's relational. We fundamentally, we, we, we never make asynchronous content that people engage in by themselves. We don't believe, we think that personal development happens interpersonally. Yeah. And so people, for instance, in Ceres Unified School District in the Central Valley, uh, Rhonda leads their induction program. She's fantastic. And so what she will do is everyone gathers in this like multi-purpose room and my already big head is projected on a wall and people and in, in the session, like if, if people can kind of picture it, there's like a, a session in a web page. So there's the welcome video. There's the review of the last session video. There's the research for this session video. And then there's the application. Um, and so we give people everything they need, the packets, the okay. whatever, if you're, if you're taking some, assessment, a Google sheet to do that. And so the webpage has everything. And then people synchronously engage in the asynchronous content. 
um, over the course of that session. And we, we kind of obsess about the efficacy of this stuff. So we have people take a survey at the end of every session, but we also have people take a baseline well-being survey at the beginning of the program and then an end of program assessment okay. using like the Maslach burnout inventory and the Connor Davidson resilience scale and the PERMA scale from Penn. And oftentimes, you know, if you just have pre and post, you can't make any causal claims. Um, what, what some of our partners do, which is cool, is they have a comparison group of people who are very demographically similar to the people mm. in the program as okay. compared to the people who aren't in the program. People can find that on our website. Yeah. Um, but it's been interesting to see how those results play out. And that's still, you can't make causal claims, um, but it's, I think, interesting to yeah. see what is how how people's well-being changes, um, whether okay. they're in the program or not. And then tell me a little bit more about the other half of what you're doing. Yeah, so like I said earlier, the kind of core idea is it's just not enough to help people cope well with a system that is going to perpetually re-burn them out. We need to change systems. Yeah. And so at first, we, uh, Hallie and Laura helped us build out measures of essentially employee engagement and, and, and you know, typical scales that are used throughout a variety of industries to measure uh, people's experience in the workplace. We um, had our original partnership with the Boston Teachers Union. And so we've always had a close connection with the American Federation of Teachers. And eventually we got connected with some senior people at the American Federation of Teachers. And they said, you know what, we really want to understand not what educator burnout is, but what is educator well-being? Mm. What is what is true of educator well-being? And we want to understand that in a way that is not just the way we measure it in all these other industries. What is what is unique about that? So we went through this really, I think, cool process. To the first phase was we engaged in 70 hours of focus groups with teachers from four union locals across the country, and we asked them, what does well-being look like? What, who is a colleague of yours who is thriving, who is right. flourishing in the work? What is true of the days when you get to the end of the day and you feel fantastic? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so we kind of coded all of those answers and came up with 500 survey items, which is obviously ludicrous. No one's <laughs> going to take a 500 item survey. Yeah. And so we went back to those people and we said, help us narrow these down and eventually got it down to 120 items, took it back to them, eventually got it down to 84 items. And then we had 1300 educators across the country take this 84 item survey that also had other validated scales of well-being around okay. mental health and stress and burnout job satisfaction. And then Hallie with a, and Laura with a team of other, a few other researchers did this thing called exploratory factor analysis, which basically okay. means that you understand how do, of the 84 items, how do they clump together? And then which of these items and these factors are predictive of well-being based on the other validated scales of well-being that we used? And what we found is there are six factors that are predictive of educator well-being. And we boiled it down to 26 items. So these 26 items and these six factors were predictive of well-being. And people can find the survey on our website. But what I thought was fascinating is one of the factors, responsive leadership and supportive culture, mm -hmm. was about the working conditions. And 50% yeah. of the variance in a person's well-being is predicted by their answers to those items. Wow. 
That's crazy. The other 50% is predicted by their answers to the other five items, which are primarily personal dispositions. So um, adaptability, the absence of depletion. Um, and, and so I think it frankly, like was, was really neat to see the way that it is. It's about working conditions and it's also about how we show up as individuals in those working conditions and, and that the balance of the two. And I think, so now what we're doing is we're working with schools and systems across the country to give this survey, which is an educator generated definition of well-being that is predictive of other validated measures of well-being. So we, we're, we're partnering with people to use this to assess the well-being of their workforce, to analyze the results, and we help them hold the change. I haven't said this yet, but I'm also a half-time vice principal at a school. In yeah, Russia. I saw that. I was like, you're busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we gave this survey to our staff, and then okay. we, um, you know, uh, remeasured it at the end of the year, and, and, and it's been really neat to kind of eat our own dog food, you know, and, and, and try this stuff ourselves. And, and, and so we, we help people hold the change. We are not like Panorama does, I think a great job of giving people the survey results. We are not aspiring to be Panorama. We want to help people measure this stuff. And sometimes they say, Hey, I just want to know the data, but oftentimes we help them hold the change that they identify that they want to see. Yeah. Like what are they going to do now that they know the data? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. This is great. (laughs) Cool. <laughs> kind of flies by. I was like yeah. really intrigued in what you're saying. And I just looked down. I'm like, oh, this is time to wrap up. So <laughs> cool. <laughs> Hopefully the listeners will feel the same way. But um, I'd love to just kind of, I always ask people, anything you want to share, like, you know, the website, I think you mentioned it, but the website, anything like that. And then just any final thoughts of maybe something you're just like, oh, I really wanted to say this and I didn't get a chance. Yeah. I mean, my core motivation for doing this work is I'll just speak personally for myself, rooted in the idea that every child is made in the image of God and has infinite worth and value and potential. And I think that we systematically dishonor the worth and potential of kids, particularly kids of color, particularly kids who are poor. Um, And I want to commit my life to, to changing that. And Beautiful. I think that we also systematically dishonor the worth and potential of our educators. And, 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 and I just don't see a way for us to get to the day when every kid has a fair shot without doing this work to support educators differently. I don't mm-hmm. see a path. And so I think that I agree. we've got to get really intentional about doing this work well. Uh, and I just feel like a lucky dude to have the chance to try to make some small um, progress in that regard. That is like the most amazing close that I've had thus far on the podcast. So thank you. <laughs> really awesome. Yeah. I felt that in my heart and I appreciate having you on. Oh, anything you want to share? Educatorthriving.org. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Thank cool. you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the mindful education warrior podcast. I want you to know that every guest and listener is a value part of this co-creation. We're so honored that you listened and we hope that this helped you in some small or big way today. This is a community and a movement and without you, it wouldn't be possible. If you wanna learn more about me, you can go to davidkrichards.com where you will find special offers for podcasts. And as always, if you're moved by an episode, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. 
finally, our greatest compliment is when you share an episode with someone who you believe will benefit from the message. I'm sending you so much love today and the courage to really be the mindful warrior within you. Thank you. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.